0: I'm Al Reese, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. Or poems. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities and, we hope, gain for a poem that interests us, some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Pen Sound archive, writing.upen.edu slash PenSound. Today I'm joined here in Philadelphia at the Kelly Writer's House in our Arts Cafe by Lainey Brown, poet, prose writer, teacher, editor, and other things, author of more than a dozen collections of poems, three novels, and who has edited several important collections, such as I'll Drown My Book, Conceptual Writing by Women, and a new collection of essays on the poet's novel, A Forest of Many Stems. She's been teaching creative writing courses here at Penn for many years and recently joined us full-time as, among other things, lead coordinator and co-teacher of ModPo, a free and open course on modern and contemporary U.S. poetry. And by Anthony Elms, the Daniel and Brett Sundheim chief curator at the Institute of Contemporary Art, ICA, here in Philadelphia, he has organized unforgettable exhibitions at ICA over the years, among them Christopher Knowles, In a Word with Hilton Owls, Rodney McMillan, The Black Show, Colleen Smith, Give It or Leave It, and others. He has also independently curated a number of shows, among them Sun Ra, El Saturn, and Chicago's Afro Futurist Underground. And by Charles Bernstein, poet, critic, poetry world instigator, co-editor with Bruce Andrews of the legendary magazine Language, which became a forum for advocating blurring, confusion, idiomatic talking, and the denial of the wall that had been separating poetry from criticism, who was born in New York, New York, New York, the greatest city in the world, some say, educated at Bronx Science, and at Harvard, where he studied with Stanley Cavell and later taught at Buffalo, and then here at Penn, where with me, I'm proud to say, he co-founded Penn Sound. Charles Bernstein, you're here from New York. It's a joy to see you, as always. Great to be here with you. Unironic. My saying it was a joy to see you was unironic, and what did you come back with?
1: I, I came back with, you know, from the bottom of my heart, how happy I am to be back here at <laughs> you, the University. Of you hear me talk
0: about Bronx science, and you go into your your Bronx science. Okay, all right. Well, it's good to see you, Charles Anthony Elms. Notwithstanding Charles tomfoolery, it's good to see you in all sincerity. It's
2: a pleasure to be here. I was a longtime listener and first time um, first time. Uh, I guess I don't even know what I am.
0: You're a patsy. patsy. You're a colloquist. Okay. Right. You're not a patsy by any means. <laughs> it's, this is your first poem talk, and i real, really excited to have you join us. And Lainey Brown, I see you every day, but it is just always equally exciting.
3: I'm so happy to be here.
0: Well, today we four have gathered here to talk about two poems by George Quasha. Quasha has been writing a series of poem meditations he calls Preverbs. A recent collection of Preverbs published in 2020 is entitled Not Even Rabbits Go Down This Hole. At the end of the book, there's a section going under that title, so I guess we could say that the preverbs brought together there are titular in some sense. We have chosen two of these to discuss, numbers 12 and 13, in that section. Given the titles, Self Fast, that's number 12, and That Music Razors Through, that's number 13. Our recording of these poems comes from Quasha's. Pen Sound page where we feature an audio production engineered by Chris Funkhauser back in December of 2017. So here now is George Quasha performing two preverbs self fast and that music razors through.
4: 12. Self fast. Far in toward the far end. The dream gets realer than real. You can't tell if you're either here nor there or neither either. Real is your tongue twisting at cross purposes with what you think you're saying. What saying you're doing is what I'm hearing the other way around. This is the territorial hazard. I'm here learning the reality of language to know the language of reality way round. It's what you don't have to already know to know now. There's echo with no original. A single string of cello raises up the body electric. This discourse makes the cursive course. Unforced lines of force do not force, but allow release coherently bounding linear. It seems to be happening, but that's only one angle. Being thinking is speaking true. We think what we hear should excite like life, which is never enough. Could be. Thinking gets urges. Reading glimpses forces. The lines haunt nature from within. When music timely touches your timeless zone, it stays near. Not mine to reason sly, but to shoo or fly. She sings like this into my place of fear. <clears throat> 13, that music razors through. Sir. Your persona is showing is the first line of the opera to come. Such a tune carries involuntary satisfaction. Thinking is only the never thought. An instant thought is too quick to say like life. I only like fantasy I can believe in once and for all. Otherwise, it's not fantastic the mirror spills. I have nothing new to say this once only, which is why I'm trembling in the lip. Sectioning the mirror only amplifies the same. Multiplying the mask unmasks it. To think this cuts in on identity. We play this tune all night just to hear ourselves think. You can't focus on identity without slippage and danger to the body. The blade is between the details, or else the syllables. The ear slices sounding, finer than fine with me. Meaning is that you don't know what it is, but you know already. Terminality runs alongside. Language has tricks it never tells you for your own good. It has no time to tell you how to read it, yet it never stops telling. Over time, it cuts you through the veil until you know it's you.
0: Laney. every line is a sentence. First question, since each line is a sentence and could conceptually stand alone or grammatically or by way of the territory of its reference to the world or not to the world, could stand alone, one question arises is, do any come in sequence? Do we do we connect one line to the next, or do we read them as independent sentences, and then it's our brain that's connecting them? So that's one question. And the other is, they all tend toward aphoristic. <laughs> Some are really aphoristic. Others are just... Aphoristic, because all the rest are so aphoristic. Maybe you can pick a couple that are really aphoristic and and we can figure out what a poet might be doing writing a series of aphorisms as preverbs. That's a lot, Lainey. Mm-hmm. Sorry.
3: Well, I'll start with the first question about the sentences because it seems like, well, one of the things I love so much about this is that we're really being toyed with and we're really being played with and there's paradox and lingual play everywhere so sometimes the the period it's it's a full stop but I keep reading it and then it the reading of what I just read is changed by what comes next so for instance uh, in 12 the third stanza from the bottom we think we we think what we hear should excite like life which is never enough period could be So then we might read that as, oh, but life could be, and then it's could be, thinking gets urges, so then it's changed in the Tercet, it's changed twice dramatically, so we have opposite meanings. So
0: could be, could come from anywhere, it could be just a phrase, or it could be a response to the provocation of this line
3: human nature being insatiable and it's never going to be enough or, or it could be, it could be enough. So depending on the inflection, there's two different ways. And then thinking gets, could be thinking if you connect it to the next line, could be thinking gets urges. And that's a third way. And I think these things all connect to aphorism adages because it, they're all torqued.
0: They're all torqued. Okay. Anthony, then to you on aphoristic language, um, It's pretty unusual for someone. People don't talk aphoristically one after the other.
2: No, no, no. Um, Yeah, it's funny. Like, I read these a lot of times before I listened to his recording. And so I was trying to make the sentences in a stanza connect to one another. And I was trying to put like a a bookend on each poem and sit with them. But then listening to his, his reading separates them again. And so suddenly I was like, I could never get them back into poems and I could only sort of treat them as aphorisms. Right. And I've always liked that Georg Christoph Lichtenberg, who's considered one of the you know, originators of aphorisms, described them as truths and pennyworths. And so I've always liked that because like an aphorism is true only if you don't, you know, open the horizon. Mm. So I really like, like these sentences, like almost to the end of um, that music razors through when you've got language has tricks. It never tells you for your own good. Seems easy easy to get into. And Then the second one is, it has no time to tell you how to read it, yet it never stops telling.
0: So presumably the it there is language.
2: Presumably, but then the more and more I read it, I keep doubting myself yeah. if I should be taking that it to language or if it, because there's its, there's theirs here, there's, you know, that's, there's lots of things that are slippery with mm-hmm. whether I want to modify it or, you know, actually tether it to anything, or just let it be.
0: Charles, I want to focus your attention in the 13th poem, That Music razors Through, to two lines, continuing on this topic of ours, how are they related. One of the most aphoristic lines, and for me one of the most interesting, is in the middle of that poem, multiplying the mask unmasks it. Then there's this other fabulous line, to think this cuts in on identity. Charles, I would love to know what you do when you read that or hear that, and I'm inviting you to add to this conversation about how, whether the lines are strictly paratactic, whether they connect, whether it's all in our head that they connect, et cetera. Well, it's a fabric of
1: instantiations that connect and disconnect as as you like. like. It's really in a way, the question is, is a collage or montage? Right. And I think mm. he plays with the, with with he toggles between that montage being, as in Eisenstein, where the individual fragments have some paraphrasable connection, which in some ways they do. You could talk about the themes. Uh, collage being maybe related to Vertov. Oh, oh, there's one thing and then another and another. And I think he's he's I- interested in both. That that line that you. The two lines you connect up, or ask me about, they're together, so they're a stanza. So the stanzas certainly are meant to be connected, but then there are spaces in between. Is uh, goes back to one on the previous poem that you asked us to took at to look at. There's echo, ec- there's echo with no original. It's very close to my own conception of echo poetics. Uh, so you have a kind of shimmering multiplicity of of possibilities, and to think that anyone has an identity, both in the current sense of identity politics but also in the sense of identity as a way to know something, uh, the identity of an object or a state of mind or a thing in the world. He's trying to destabilize that to
0: open it up to, you know, m- many possible worlds. Preverbs. So let's let's all just throw out synonyms for this, right? Well, What's obviously a- it's 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 a, it's a take on proverb, which relates to...
1: Mm-hmm. Take on proverb.
0: So that's one. Lainey, you got one?
3: Before verb. So before action is thought.
0: Before action. Anthony?
3: I was thinking like it's it's not yet an action.
0: It's about to
2: move. Like mm-hmm. it's really about to... Like I was thinking of it more like, I guess, because I know he's a sculptor. And so you're getting it right It at also that, is, is at that an custom? action term. Yeah.
1: Uh, and I think the sculpture relates. I mean, uh, it's close enough to his generation as in action painting... To to preverb is to, to do something with a verb. To, it, it sounds almost like it's an, 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 a turning a verb into a tra- turning, turning the verb into an an action on something or in something in the right. mind. In I the also language.
3: hear reverb, like <laughs> with reverb, the focus echo. on music and the the music in the
0: right. poems. And then there's the idea of verb, as in verbiage or verbal, meaning just language languagey generally. Jerry McGann, Jerome McGann, writing about this piece, particularly, not these poems, but the, but the series, used the phrase preverbial music. So you think mm-hmm. about pre-linguistic sound making, which seems a little weird because this is so uh, full of concepts and thoughts. It doesn't sound soundy, but it gets there. So now here's my follow-up question to that. I listened to a whole bunch of these, and I was complete. I was almost hallucinating. <laughs> I mean, it really is the the reading of it is just he can, he does these preverbs again and again and again and more and more. And he's got, he's got topics that interest him, but it just washes over me in a very pleasant way. Responses to that reaction to listening to one preverb after another. Again, I'm thinking about McGann and his phrase, preverbial music. It's very the musical. Titles, the
1: sequence that we're reading, which is also the title sequence of the book, is dedicated to Jerome McGann, the great um, critic of perhaps Byron, uh, but also of romanticism and romantic ideology. And it reminds me also of the fact that Quasha uh, starts out as a Blake scholar, he, uh, and uh, Blake remains central. And there's a quote from Blake, which, which in a way relates to your question, which could be the hallucinogenic fluid quality of the work while not actually being hallucinogenic because right. it constantly calls you up short and makes you where you're reading something you're holding in your hand. But the aphorism really for the whole series from the, that Quasha has is from the Proverbs of Hell. So Proverbs is certainly a reference also to Blake's Proverbs of Hell from the marriage of heaven and hell. And it's everything possible to be believed is an image of the truth. So this Blakean phenomenology, uh, which I think goes very much against the kind of empirical, uh, you know, uh, uh, show me I'm from Missouri uh, attitude in, in American uh, culture. suggests, at least within poetic space, that every possible envisionment of good or evil, m- heaven and hell, comes in a succession, and only when you consider all of those echoes without understanding there's any original. So the preverb also is the, the blank, non-original that only has echoes. And these multiple images create the possibility for uh, imaginative space which is necessary for thought, which is necessary for knowledge, which is a prerequisite for truth, which is always truths. It certainly fits into Anthony's interest in the history of, Mm -hmm. of, of aphorisms and you also could mention Schlegel too, related to Lichtenberg.
4: Yeah.
2: Um, I'm trying to, my first thought right now is an aphorism from Lichtenberg of when a book and a head collide, does the empty sound always come from the book? Cause I'm, 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 right. I'm a little, but, that's
1: um, a, that's but very it's very close to this. I it's think. very You're close right. to that. Yeah. It's like, there's
2: a, yeah. I mean, there is a, I'm really thinking, cause I think a lot about sound and I think of a lot about, I mean, I, I also, I spent all day Sunday listening to all of the preverbs on pen sound and all the recordings. You, it's, it's hours. Multiple times. Yeah. Well, well. I don't have much of a life. So I, <laughs> I had right. much I, to I, go uh, through.
0: Forget but, the question I just asked you or hold but, it. Well, but no, what was that like? Well, I did the same, but I was running. Well, what I was gonna say is like there's
2: there's an interesting thing where um, I think his speed of reading them, which is why I sort of couldn't put these back into poems, you know, returning to them into stanzas because you're trying to catch up with the language and you're like half a beat behind him, and there's so much wordplay that you're like, wait, did I hear there? Did I hear three there? You know, you're playing with these things as you're listening to them, and you're really trying to grab them for what they're. Because they seem to be telling you something. It, that you're not getting the feeling that you're reading diaristic. You're not reading memories. You're not reading impressions. You're reading. Everything has a point, or or turns on a point.
0: Or might, he, might, but it doesn't a point. stop. Or might,
2: have, but he doesn't stop. And so you're right. you're playing. You know, I'm trying to think of. Um, you know, it's like when you're in a like a busy space and you can overhear things, but you can't really hear anything directly. And you're always sort of mashing these things and playing catch up with the space around.
0: Would you accept if I said that I thought of these as meditations? That's not right. But how close am I? Are these meditations? It's okay to say no, even though I'm the host.
2: (laughs) Well, you know, like I, I think of them as one reason I like aphorisms is like they're kind of they can become rules that you live by that only make sense for yourself. So in that, I don't think you're so wrong. I mean, there is a sort of, I mean, reading some of these, I'm like, this might get me through the day. This sentence just might make sense. Yeah. Oh, I like that. I, I, I feel that way. I definitely
3: experienced it as meditation. And I was reminded in his reading of listening to some of John Cage's journals, hours and hours. And so there's this very gentle quality to the voice. And it seems very, the reading seems not at all rushed. And yet I I kept needing to pause it to actually try to think about what was being said. So I could experience it as washing over me or I could read it very closely. But I feel like one of the things that points to meditation is that there's this obsession with thinking and also kind of a disintegration of thinking and a question of what's real. So the title, Self Fast, there's many ways you could read that, but one way you could read it is I'm fasting from self with a lowercase right. s, from which is very al- yeah. aligned with so many meditative traditions. I have a you question. know, there is
1: a reference to Cage in our, our mm-hmm. poem, right? In the mm-hmm. second poem, yep. I have nothing new to say this yes. once only, which yes. is
0: why I'm trembling in the lip. Yeah. Uh, so I want to get back to The point that Charles just made, and maybe even Cage. But before we go, let's finish up with Lainey Tone. So the tone is sincere. Even when he's doing a little tomfoolery with, he's cracking the aphorisms, almost always it's not, ha-ha, this is what I can do. It's not comic in that sense. Am I right?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that there's humor, but it's... It's kind of laughing at the mind and how serious we can be in trying to understand the nature of mind. Is that necessary? This is, these are serious questions. And if we don't approach them with some humor, how will we ever survive?
0: Um, I want to do two things and you can go anywhere you want with this. Okay, there's a lot of latitude in what I'm about to do, but I want to do two things. The first thing I'd like to do is ask us to do what readers and listeners do, which is they come upon an aphorism or a quasi-aphorism or a near-aphorism, and they either stop the tape or they forget about, as Anthony was suggesting, his 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 listening experience, they forget about the few lines that come later because they're stuck on this thing they have just heard. So one of the things that poem talk does when it does something well is to say the obvious, not the obvious, but to try to say things that are plain, such as, here's what this line suggests to me or even means to me. So what I'd like to do is go around one each for the four of us, ask you to pick a line and try to make sense of it. It could be a paraphrase or it can be a riffing on what you think when you hear it. The second thing I'm going to do, and I'm going to warn you, it's a surprise. I'm sorry. I'm going to ask Zach to play, and you can't. You have to put your book away. You have a copy of the book, Charles. <laughs> to play. It's, is that is that cheating?
1: I mean, you're it's like going to, bring to be cheating, as exam. you'll see.
0: <laughs> to play section 17 of this series, and for the four of us to listen mm-hmm. to it, and respond to what we hear, not what we see on the page and to just talk about that a little, because it's very much in sequence in this series, because this is 12 and 13, that's 17. So first, let's do a lightning round, starting with Lainey. Pick a line and just talk about it for a little bit.
3: I'm going to start with, in 12, in the middle, there's echo with no original. And so I read that as an inability to locate the source as in a busy mind with so many thoughts. We don't know what the origin is.
0: I love that. Thank you. Anthony?
2: I guess I'm going to go from the same stanza. I'm going to go with the the last sentence, which I keep landing on in various readings. This discourse makes the cursive course. And I, I mean, I love how the sentence sounds. I love how it sounds in the head when you read it. And I love that course, like course could be movement, course could be rough. You know, like I, I can't settle on what he means by if, if the course is, you know, if the discourse is roughing up our cursive or if it's, you know, making it flow and go endlessly and keep keep those minds going.
1: Love it. Charles? So there's always a, there's often a torquing of of cliches or or. N- known aphorisms or sayings that goes on and that's in a way uh, has to do with it, when you were talking about listening both a- Anthony and Al uh, what happens when you constantly hear these uh, detournements these changes of what the expected pattern is um, and there there's many of those but one of them is a very simple one thinking is only the never thought so the underlayer of that is thinking is what is thought. Our thought is what we think. I have a number of poems with the same set of things. What I thought is what I meant and what I meant. But this is a very Wittgensteinian, um, and it it suggests uh, Quash's allegiance. Quash was born in 1942. Um, It it suggests his allegiance to uh, pragmatism and to kind of a Dewey like process as reality as would many of his contemporaries and the generation earlier like Creeley and Anton who he would connected with that thought is always a scleroticized it's something fixed and that what one wants is an active thinking that doesn't have a final object but that that echoes on to other thoughts ah
0: great Thank you Charles that's Can fantastic I please, to that? please
2: yeah it's just worth adding to that that he's worked a lot with the video artist Gary Hill. Yes, a, wonderful book. Who's worked a lot with, yeah. you know, Wittgenstein and, like, is, yeah. is very much tied to the same sort of yeah. idea of thinking. That Gary Hill activate. book,
1: big artist book, is a beautiful book it's of gorgeous. his. And yeah. Very, very closely connected with that, yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, to talk about this person as merely a poet is obviously not doing him a great service. Well, he's service also he's done an
1: important publisher, which the Station Hill, Station going Hill, back yeah. to the, the 70s.
0: Yeah, so my uh, my choice is it's really in line with what Charles said, which was just, just now, which was so fantastic. The beginning of 12 is about, uh, first it's about how real a dream is, you know, you get to the far end of the dream and things get realer than real, that is just fantastic. Uh, and then he's really thinking about where he is in that liminal state, presumably the state before waking. Um, but then the third line is my favorite in this poem, real... So, he's already been talking about what's real. Real is your tongue twisting at cross purposes with what you think you're saying. So, you get this idea, I'm going to be obvious here, you get this idea that, and sometimes these lines are tongue twisters, cra- cracking or torquing an aphorism can produce a tongue twister. But if your tongue is not saying what is real, the language as it's supposed to be, then it is at cross purposes with the intention, this goes back to what Charles just said, with the intention, with the thinking that you're trying to produce in the sounds that actually come through your tongue. And if you create a kind of um, mala proposition, which so many of these aphorisms are, you can create something that is dreamlike, going back to the first line. I just love that. Okay, here we go. We're going to listen to Poem 17 in this sequence, you can't look, Charles, no. What page is that again? No, you're not allowed to look.
4: 17. Getting out from under a life dragnet. If I could cancel the circa 34,000 preverbs recorded to date for novelty, would I? An answer here had no relevance to a previous line by novelty in its principle. Expect nothing is the poetics. A poem is a species of language unconcerned with me, me as merely me. Has its own ups and downs which make it mine, the mine not mine. Disavowing nothing is the operative poetics nor reaching further than sense attends in a moments going by even now language hides from view the facts inside the fact that it is alive its nature is to elude showing knowing its nature stop this she says it has the same No being without my being, I have while othering. It can't lay off the gesture. It waves its hands speaking on the phone, Italian style. All for my benefit, which I can only deny. It's selling itself as we speak. It talks with card shark shifty eyes. Its nature is such that you wouldn't believe it if you knew it. It's no more believable than poetry and for the same trumped-up charges. It plays charades for the best of causes beyond causation. It cuts through the middle of the halfway said. It sucks in its incompletions between syllables, half-uttered, This dance is happening nowhere fast. Its belief is attuned to come. Wow.
0: (laughs) Wow. Okay, first impressions. Anthony, give us a first impression.
2: Maybe because it was towards the end, I'm really sitting with halfway said and thinking of that as a phrase Mm -hmm. and how there's all this getting you between things and undoing things, so...
0: Kind of like halfway heard, mm-hmm. which is what you've been talking about. Yeah. Lainey, what do you think of that?
3: Um, I'm just thinking about language as a character that we experience as something that cannot be possessed, that has its own agency, that is very, you know, changing, mercurial. We can't get a handle on it.
0: Charles? So to echo
1: Lainey uh, and uh, quoting Quasha, the mind, not mine which is a, a, a homophone that you'll hear in other people. But in this context, I think it relates to a lot of what uh, you all have been saying about the experience of listening. So you you move from the specific and even the material qualities of the aphorisms or the preverbs into something that seems more collective, something that creates a kind of drift uh, even a somnopoetics in George's earlier sense, and uh, this is an aspect of what I want to call as euphemistically as possible Eastern thought, because he's not specifically referencing Taoism or Zen. But and and I think it's important that he's that he's not re- saying it, but nonetheless, growing up in the period that George and I did, it relates to some of the turn away from a kind of Western, goal-driven,
0: Judeo-Christian teleology. This poem, more than the others, um, has lines which follow, that that seem to follow. So the riff on it, we get a lot of it, and for a while it is the sort of Wallace Stevensian modern it, it is the poem, or poetry. But it wanders around, and it is quite quite something, because it is so various. So, and then it begins with a very funny line about 34,000 preverbs. So he's really, this is a metapoetic statement. This is a, this is a, this is a poem that's concerned about the poetics. So to the extent that we can find Quasha's poetics here, let's just go around and say what that is. I mean, uh, one line is disavowing nothing, is the operative poetics. Meaning, uh, I'm redoing what selfhood is in the poem, but I'm not disavowing the self. This is true and on, This is real. Something like that. So that's one stay, uh, stab at it. Lainey, what's your thought on this?
3: Um, I'm, if, I'm trying to quote, if I got this down correctly, a poem is a species of language unconcerned with me. Close if it's not exactly right.:
0: That's a poetic statement.: That is
3: a, yeah, that's a really clear poetic statement. Again, poetry having a life of its own beyond the person, even if he speaking of his own poetry, it, right. it goes on with in its own. it's independent. But it also seems to speak to a kind of collectivity as opposed to an individual approach to literature. It has its own concerns. We all have our own concerns, including a poem.
0: Yeah. Anthony? Yeah, I
2: mean, I think, I mean, there's a way, like, he's obviously trying to deny a sort of,
0: oh, no, I don't want to really,
2: because he doesn't use the word really deny. He doesn't really deny anything. He might disavow, but it seems important that he doesn't really deny, he doesn't stop things. Right. He just turns away from them. Yeah. And so it's like he will not, he's not going to narrativize it. Yeah. Which is interesting. I yeah. Think like it's, it's trying to stop that, turning it into something that's just about him or just about poetics, but keeping it moving.
0: There is denial there. Um, right. Well. All, yeah, right, all, right, right. I mean, the word right. deny. Yeah. All for my benefit, right. which I can only deny. It's selling itself as I speak. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Okay. I take that back. But. No, no. I don't, enough, think but, what, I don't think it contradicts what you're saying. Yeah. Here's, that, here's that three lines all for my benefit, which I can only deny. It's selling itself as we speak. It talks with card-shark, shifty eyes. Um, This goes back to Laney's idea that this is not about George or an individual poet. This is clearly a poetics that gets out there. and You can't, once you do the project, it's just gonna be there. You can't do anything about it.
1: Charles? I suppose that's The Confidence Man by Melville. you, and, and one of the things, and I'd say this is so, so pervasive in what I do, is that uh, you, you make a certain number of meta-comments to sort of disarm somebody listening. Could be this, could be that. And the the, the metaportics in this case do dissolve into some sort of larger perceptual flow. So in answer to your earlier question, uh, the, while the title is, is funny uh, w- with the rabbit hole, in, in general, uh, I, I don't think he's meditative or comic. I think that it's uh, it's a set of conceptual provocations that move one back in through the flow of consciousness to expand consciousness. In a way, he's a classic uh, person of uh, of 1960, maybe, or the 60s of, in terms of expanding consciousness. I want to read just something that he writes about it responds partly to the question of the framing of the whole thing. The first of the preverbs, he says, is from 2011. The preverb's basic unit is the line. So he's sticking to the line, even though, of course, it's prose poems. And the limit of the line is the parameter of M.S. words, 81 word characters, no run over lines. So he keeps it to 81 characters, each line. and then You mean that's the ne- limit? That's the limit yeah. to any one line, and the mm-hmm. work is composed of lines. And then though actually doesn't say it here, of course there are stanzas sometimes, and then poems, the, the, the larger frame, and then series, so he writes them in in series, and this seriality is a word I should have used earlier when I was talking about collage and, uh, and montage, because he's operating within a poetics of seriality. You think of Jack Spicer's famous comment that he doesn't want poems to be like a one-night stand, so there has to be a connection, but the connection is through the flow, not even a perception, but a multiple and and contradictory uh, in,
0: images of reality. Well, we could talk about this amazing work forever. It, it does have a sort of forever quality to it, but we can't. So let's go around for final thoughts, something that you meant to say today, but the conversation just didn't drift that way. So Charles, do you have a final thought? Let me read what I wrote about it which is on the back cover.
1: Quote, words say too much to let you know the truth. George Quash's torqued, enigmatic preverbs create unlikely balances among discrepant engagements. The vectors of these marvelous poems work at cross purposes, keeping each other aloft. These are sparkling aphoristic aporias for a new age in an old time. Poetry, says Quasha, resists immortality with difficulty, and also with wit and charm. Be here now, in which case
0: immortality will take care of itself. Follow up and ask you about resists. It's his quote, resists immortality with difficulty. He doesn't resist immortality by introducing difficulty he has a hard time resisting immortality. Which is it? The latter. The latter. Yeah. Interesting. But
1: of course, and in fact, they give the blurb for me, they say author of Attack of the Difficult Poem. So <laughs> <I> mean, they, <laughs> it's, they it, picked it, that one. They,
0: yeah, right, wait, mean, what, wait, uh, our listeners need to know too, that, but that Charles obviously is Obviously,
1: like, he's trying to talk about the legacy of difficulty in modernism and contemporary yeah, work, yeah. but he's changing the sense of difficulty to be a process like grappling.
0: Yes. So when the when the designers of the back cover identified you as the author of attack of the difficult poems, they had obviously read the blurb and were saying something. What were they saying? Well, I think they were t- trying to, to to
1: allow this echo to be clear and maybe to underline the the wit of Quash's yeah phrase. Great. Okay.
0: Laney, final thoughts.
3: So there's a phrase. Um the reality of language it gets turned to the language of reality, which I think is beyond language, which reminds me of something that Norman Fisher once said, everything and its opposite are true. I don't know what is the source of that, but that's a Buddhist saying. Everything and its opposite are true. And this poem seems to epitomize the challenges involved in trying to grasp that paradoxical truth. With music and lightness and, and gravity, so that they're not in conflict. Everything in its opposite are true.
0: Nice. Anthony, what's your final thought?
2: My final thought was just another question that I always had reading these how to read, because some of the lines are italicized. And I'm trained as a reader to think of an italic as either emphasis or quotation. So, if I think of these as quote, if I think of some of the lines as quotations, what does that do?
0: Yeah. This, this is a problem, isn't it? Because they're all sort of quotations, mm-hmm. but then there are some italics, such as, Sir, your persona is showing.
2: Being thinking is speaking true is the other one. Not mind to reason sly, but to shoe or fly.
0: Yeah. it's. Yeah, I love that. Um, my final thought has to do with his understanding of fine, F-I-N-E, he's writing about sound at a certain point in 13 that music razors through. There's a slicing, fine slicing going on there. Um, And he writes, the ear slices sounding finer than fine with me. And I take fine with me to be Uh, sneaking in of the idiomatic it's fine with me, it's okay it's good and I really love the idea that the ear, the sounding the hearing does a sounding which is a kind of discerning or getting to the bottom of something right, a sounding so the ear slices sounding finer presumably finer than the brain does it we need the ear to do it than comparative fine with me and I just love I don't quite know what to do with it but I just love the idea that something carefully discern something sliced finely is fine is good is okay is affirmed
1: maybe it's worth giving the reference to some listeners to the Tennyson the charge of the light brigade which relates to what you've just talked about Al uh, uh, which is for those of us who know it by heart. Uh, theirs but to do and they, they, um, <laughs> ours not we the reason we know by heart but why. we're reading from
0: our notes <laughs> <laughs> ours but to do or die um, not which, mine to reason sly but to shoe or fly so Tennyson is writing about well war the, and blind allegiance
1: and, and right? Quasha's Poetics is the opposite that
0: ours is to think and live exactly So how would we antonymically translate that torquing of Tennyson? I'm asking a serious question here. Not mine, to reason sly, but to shoe or fly is a mocking of the Tennyson. But what's it saying as an alternative? Well, I think it's saying what you commented on right
1: before I brought that in. That is to say, the slicing and the rethinking and the resequencing opens up alternative worlds which are the only worlds we have, right? And that that isn't to do or to to die, and it isn't thought; it's thinking as a pro- serial process of constant torquing and reconfiguration,
0: right? And I this is overstating it, but I like a third sense of fine when I read it twice in that line. Um, fine, as in fine art. I think there's a rede- redefinition. I mean, the, the fine arts, in the, certainly in the Tennyson period are one thing they are officially optimistic for one thing and this is a fine art in the sense of finely discerning and fine meaning good as in ethical well we like to end poem talk with a minute or two of gathering paradise which is a chance for several of us or if you're quick all of us to spread wide our narrow hands to gather a little something poetically good to hail or commend someone going on in the poetry world or the art world or any world that we care about so who wants to gather paradise anthony are you i think you came prepared did you (laughs) i always have something i love fantastic Um, what is it well i was thinking how much
2: Quora has meant to me as a publisher of you know other artists through station hill press and so in honor of that i kind of wanted to uh, mentioned shelter press which is run by a french composer writer felicia atkinson and she's been doing great work of bringing a lot of people that are interested in this between world of like theory experimental music experimental poetry together through journals albums tapes uh, festivals that they've done and so i'm always impressed by artists helping other artists
0: fantastic and say the name of the press again Shelter Press. Fantastic. Lainey Brown, Gather Some Paradise.
3: I want to say something about Rosemary Mayer, the visual artist, and two fairly recent books that have um, come out from Subs Cove Books, One is excerpts from journals, which is just astoundingly amazing, writing and descriptions of an artist working. Um, And then the other is called Temporary Monuments, which gathers work from some different shows. And there is a show up right now at the Swiss Institute in New York, which I'm excited to go see. And there's been a number of recent shows. So Rosemary Mayer, of course, sister of the beloved poet Bernadette Mayer. So check that out.
0: Fantastic. Charles Bernstein gathers some parallels. Well, I'm going to mention 1960, our host,
1: Al Fillory's fantastic book. Oh, so nice of you. Um, And um, we had a terrific event here last week about that. And uh, 1960 brings together different leitmotifs or threads from film, poetry, novels, uh, to... Bring into the consciousness of the reader because it does work as a as almost like a poem. as a series of linked essays. Uh, the repression of the trauma of the Second World War as it emerges in 1960, and it opens up to what we
0: popularly think of as the 1960s. Thank you, Charles. Very nice. Appreciate that. So I'm going to do something like that gesture for my uh, gathering paradise. I am going. I think that Anthony Elms is paradisal as a curator, and I've admired all the shows that you've done at ICA, but the one I'm particularly excited to tell people about and to ask you to comment on briefly, if you don't mind, is the show featuring the work of Christopher Knowles, and it's subtitled In a Word. I'd love love for you to put into the record, Poem Talk, what that is about or what Christopher Knowles' art has been about.
2: Well, Christopher has made paintings, what he calls typings, which I guess we could read as poems or sometimes as images. He's also made uh, performances, sound collages from the age of 13 forward, uh, maybe most known for his involvement with the uh, plays of Robert Wilson in the 70s, particularly things like Einstein on the Beach, which a large part of the librettos is his, is, uh, his original writing, and Christopher is just someone that I always thought always got overlooked um, as an author in and of himself. He was always subsumed by the more famous people he had been around. And so the show was really, um, I was, I've been obsessed with him since I first learned about the work in the 80s. And then I met Hilton Owls, who had also been obsessed with it. And we just decided we wanted to do a show that turned him into the great American writer that we thought he was. So, we looked through his archives, we looked through past typings, scripts for uh, Robert Wilson's pieces, and put them all together. And And I will do a plug. Yes, please. That he's finally represented by a gallery, Bridget Donahue Gallery in New York. And Bridget is doing the very important work of going through his archives, finding old work that's never been seen, and new work um, that he will be making going forward, and new performances.
0: Thank you. And it's no surprise that we here a few blocks away at the Kelly Writers House. Um, we're really excited when you put that show up because we like to think here that this is the sort of Kelly writing arts house and Kelly the Kelly arts writing has a lot to do with the other arts, the sibling arts. And then when you do a show like that, it draws so much attention to writing as belonging in a space like the ICA so fantastic Um, great well that's all the echo with no original we have time for on Poem Talk today Poem Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing and the Kelly Writer's House at the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation poetryfoundation.org thanks so much to my guests Lainey Brown, Anthony Elms and Charles Bernstein and to Poem Talk's directors and engineers today Zach Cardner and Chelsea Zoo and to Poem Talk's editor the same amazing Zach Cardner and a shout out to Nathan and Elizabeth Light for their very generous support of Poem Talk in our next episode Amber Rose Johnson, Yolanda Wisher and Daniel Bergman will join me for a conversation about She Got, He Got by Jane Cortez this is Al Filreis and I hope you'll join us for that or another episode of Poem Talk.